0: welcome to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, joined by NASCAR and NBC analyst, 1999 NASCAR Cup Series champion, Dale Jarrett, who was at Nashville Super Speedway last night. And DJ, we're going to talk about last night's race, won by Ross Chastain, who ends a winless streak of over 40 races. Chastain wins from the pole. And he told you and Kyle Petty and Marty Snyder, DJ, on the post-race show last night that it was like when the sun went down, there was a light switch on the number one Chevrolet and it just, it came to life. So let's just start there. Like, what did you make about how good Ross Chastain was? Cause obviously he qualified on pole, but that really in this case was indicative of how fast his car was. And, you know, perhaps as good a, as a car as he's had in the cup series.
1: Yeah, it was uh, about, you know, that there's speed there. And I think everybody was, a, wasn't exactly sure when the track was going to cool down enough to, to make a difference and how much difference was it going to make? I talked to a number of the drivers on Saturday about what could they really feel in the track with the resin that they had been told had been put down. Because when I got there uh, on Friday, it didn't look like anything was on the track. It's not like the old PJ1 that you have. So they, they weren't sure. You know how much the track was going to widen out as it turned out it was quite a bit and they weren't sure exactly they said their biggest problem is knowing where the grip is and what they can do so that being said i wasn't sure whose car was going to do what it it was quite obvious that once again kind of like a replay of last year that that martin truex jr and denny hamlin uh were both kind of the class of the field when the sun was out and the track was still extremely hot but i remember Tapping Kyle Petty on the arm after the sun had gone down, I looked up, and Ross had come out maybe fourth after pit stops or something, and I just watched him that once he got past may have been William Byron. He had like a 2.9-second gap uh, up to Denny and Martin, and I could just see him. He started clicking off, and he was about a tenth and a half. Then it went to two tenths quicker. And then before you knew it, he was running four tenths faster per lap. And it, it was just you could re- visually see his car do things that that Martin and Denny couldn't do with their cars in the center of the corner. And you could tell Ross had kind of changed his style, too. And I think I'm not sure if it was Dale Jr. or uh, Jeff Burton that alluded to it on the telecast that Ross had kind of backed up the corner a little bit. And especially when he got close enough to those guys to make runs at him. He wasn't getting into the corner as deep, but he was getting his car turned and accelerating much faster than what they were. And, and uh, boy, that's fun as a driver when you get things like that and, and they happen for you. Then he did a great job of of maneuvering not only his car, but through traffic and, and stuff with some cars and, and lap cars that were just trying to stay on the lead lap, uh, but that were making things a little bit more difficult for him.
0: Yeah. I want to get to that in a minute because obviously traffic and other drivers making things difficult for <laughs> Ross Chastain. That's been a theme of the last year and a half really in the Cup Series. But going back to what you said earlier about how the track changed, how the cars changed early in the first stint when Ross was leading from the pole, he rated in his crew, I think that he said that he w- was feeling like there was too much tightness. And Steve Ochart yeah. said on our broadcast that that might be a trouble sign because you'd rather maybe be loose earlier and then as the track cools down, it would kind of come to your favor. But I guess looking back on it, however, the trackhouse team had the number one Chevrolet set up. Was it? Do you think it was just that, that they were anticipating how the track would race when it got cooler? That Phil Surgeon, Ross's crew chief, and Chastain had sort of figured out, like, hey, we want to have it set up so that it's optimized, and whatever he was feeling in that first run was going to go away when when the track changed.
1: Yeah, I, I think one thing that they were looking at because that you know, with the race starting and we literally started just minutes after six o'clock trying to make sure that beat any rainstorms that might potentially come in later in the race and uh, never happened. Thank goodness. And with it starting that early, I think the the drivers that were on the tighter side were able to be comfortable in their cars. And I think that's what they wanted Ross to do is just be comfortable with what you were doing there, but that they had a plan to adjust the car and they made a couple of adjustments at the end of stage one, I know they made some adjustments. And then their next pit stop, they made another adjustment to his car. And I think that's really whenever they started feeling that they were getting the grip from the track that they were looking for. Now they needed to make their car fit that. And, and that's been something that maybe they've been a little bit behind on some. And, and I think Ross had admittedly a couple of times said that when they had good cars, he wasn't giving them information to make changes because the car is good. And and I could relate to that really easy. I can remember Rockingham many years ago, but I would lead a lot of laps and then Jeff Gordon would beat my tail at the end. And uh, But I wasn't adjusting on my car. And finally, after like the second time, I'm not that fast of a learner, but uh, uh, I said, you know, I'm gonna adjust on my car. If I get it off a little bit, then We can always go back to what we had to to make it as good as as what we can get. And and I think that's something that Ross has mentioned that he wants to do a better job of. And it looks like they did that last night and and did it the exact right way. And, and, you know, he needed every bit of the speed that he had to keep Martin Truex Jr. back there. I mean, Martin kept making runs at him and uh, got up beside him a couple of times. But Ross never varied from what he was doing and and just stuck to his guns. and, And he knew that. If he didn't give Martin that outside groove that he was going to be able to hold him back there because Truex, even as good as his car was, I think his car tightened up a little bit in the center because he complained about the center being really tight and then he was loose on the, the exit and that came from just trying to get the car turned in the center. So uh, it was a good job all the way around by Ross Chastain uh, managing the, the track uh, through the different conditions.
0: Yeah, he managed it as well as I think any of us have seen him him manage a race in the Cup Series. Very much like a veteran, very much like yourself. And and to give you a little bit of credit, DJ, I remember a race at Rockingham in 2003 when you outdueled Kurt Busch late in the race because you managed the race so well. So (laughs) got to correct the record there and say that you are one of the smartest racers in terms of being able to do what Ross Chastain did at Nashville last night. But let's talk a little bit more about how he did navigate traffic and you and KP both talked about this post-race. Kyle Petty said that... The way you approach traffic, we watched
2: you work traffic today. You didn't just run up on them and say, oh, now what am I gonna do with it? And and the one example was Truex is coming, and you can't get away from Eric Almarola. You cannot get away. Y'all are a magnet, y'all <laughs> are on each other. And you split them, you pay, you, you're patient enough how much patience did it take in that situation because he was coming at that
0: time chastain was much more deliberate and calculated in getting through traffic ross kind of joked afterward with you guys about how eric Almarola has been an ongoing kind of roadblock for him all year long and
2: yeah look uh eric and, and his man upstairs on the spotter stand they they got it out for me and <laughs> and they're open about it and like when we come up to lapham at dover and here it's like they're going to run me all over the track. And so I took a risky move. I, I felt like that was very high risk, um, but it was worth the
0: reward yeah. to get that clean air. Ross kind of took this risk to get clean air by scooting around Almorola as quickly as he could. And, and he said, well, you know, Eric kind of gave me a little bit of a pass. So what did you make of what we saw there from Chastain? And that it seemed like he was balancing the risks. He was still doing it like that move yep. on Almorola, but it seemed like he was managing things. We didn't see the the impatient, I'm going to knock Brendan Poole out of the way to get to the front at Dover or stay at the
1: front. Yeah, you know, we all have to learn, you know, and a lot of times we we learn the hard way, uh, you know, you, you don't want to change what has helped make you successful. Uh, but in Ross's case, he just he has so much talent and so much passion for doing this. But he was letting his overaggression aggression get in the way at some of the wrong times, you know, there's nothing wrong with the things to me that he was doing when he's racing up front and, and trying to win the races. It's the other things that he wouldn't get talked about nearly as much if it weren't the times that he really didn't have to be aggressive and, and running into people. If he could take those out of the equation and you've owned, you know, instead of having maybe eight weeks of that in a row, you only had, You know, three of the five weeks, because some of those could have been avoided very easily and and wouldn't have changed the outcome of the race for him, but it would have kept a lot of people from getting upset with him. So you'd like to see him learn. I I, I spoke with Ross, it it was kind of after his first run on Saturday in in qualifications, and he was waiting and he was sitting on the wall. And I said, well, I said, you know, I know since Darlington, things haven't been the same with you. What am I, what are we going to see this weekend? and he said you're gonna see ross and i said really he said yeah he said i said so the old ross he said you're just gonna see ross i said i got you and he just kind of smiled at me and uh i let him go from there knew that he was thinking about you know the next round and obviously he went out and won the poll then but then kyle petty had a great point last night when we were talking and and i told that story a little bit that you know what ross had told me and and kyle said but what we also saw was a calculated, Ross, and went in to explain that he was more patient with things, uh, realizing the good car that he had. He didn't really ruffle. I can't tell anywhere that he ruffled anybody's feathers last night and going and winning the race. And the move that he made there with the uh, another lap car, as he was having some trouble getting around Eric Alvarola, going in the middle of them, going into turn three, it was somewhat of a risk. But... I think that there was enough room there to do what he wanted to do, and he didn't press the issue, but he took the opportunity was that was presented. And I looked at that as kind of the winning move of the race. That put three cars between Ross and the 19 car of Martin Truex Jr. at that point in time. And so then all of a sudden, Martin's got the bad air of three cars that he has to deal with and Ross was able to stretch things out a little bit. So yeah, that's a different style than what we've seen before because he was very patient with Eric Almirola, I think uh, probably maybe even more than what he should have been. But uh, you yeah, know, that's good to see that he's thinking along those lines that, you know, you don't want to mess. I think, you know, it was something good that came out too, whenever, yeah, I think Dustin Long actually asked his car owner, Justin Marks, about the talk that he had with Ross. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk the last few weeks. It's just that the results haven't been there, and it's, you know, Ross isn't as aggressive, and you, you've had that talk to him. Where do you feel like he is?
0: And for those who suggest that this is like last fall, where he kind of, you know,
1: was not as aggressive and it hurt him, that has he fallen into that trap again? Or how do you feel like he, he is at this point?
0: Well, oh, I, I think that's a, I think that the sitting down and the talking to and all that's a narrative that has sort of taken on a, a life of its own the last couple of weeks. I mean, I've, I've not sat down with, with Ross and said, hey, do this, do that, like slow down, get, you know, like I've not had that conversation with him. I, mean, I think the conversation has been, you know, hey, let's not waste opportunities we have to win because winning is so hard and, and you know, we need to win right now. And, and you know, we don't want to be, we don't want to be losing opportunities. We want to be good partners with our key partners at, at uh, you know, within the Chevrolet camp.
1: You know, everybody's kind of blown this out of proportion as to, you know, the talk was that, hey, you know, you got to quit doing this and that. And and Justin Mark's biggest thing was, hey, we got to win when we have the opportunities to win. He didn't tell him to stop being Ross and and being aggressive. That wasn't the conversation ever. So I think that now that, you know, all of that is out there, but Ross took it to heart. You know, he mentioned quickly in his, after his celebration uh, of the things that he'd been dealing with, you know, hearing, all the people talk
2: this is incredible Um, this is why every little kid out there anywhere in the world when you get criticized and you're going to if you're competitive they will try to tear you down you will start believing them you can't do it you have to go to your people trust in the process read your books trust the the big man's plan upstairs and just keep getting up and going to work i got to tell you a lot of uh a lot of self-reflection through all of this, but I had a group that believed in me, and they didn't let me get down. And they bring rocket ships, and I just try to point them to victory lane.
1: You know, I, I guess it would be hard this day and time not to hear all of the chatter that's out there, and 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 in, in his case, you have to just sleep for 23 and a half hours a day not to hear. The stuff and so, uh, <laughs> but how you how you let it affect you is the biggest thing. And um, I think he's come to terms with what he needs to do that he can be the driver that has gotten him here and give, given him this opportunity. Uh, but he can go about things in a little bit different way.
0: Yeah, and we heard Justin Marks say that before and after the race last night, DJ, that he felt as what he had said had been a little bit misconstrued, and that he, I think, essentially said, as you just put it, that he was trying to tell Ross take care of my stuff, don't change your driving style. But I can understand, like, we're complicit in this, but I can understand how that kind of gets blown out of proportion because I think when Marks did that initial interview, it kind of did come off as we're going to talk to him. And I think it was natural for everybody to presume like, well, surely they're going to be talking about how to change his style. Clearly, he blended the best of both worlds last night, the way we've all kind of expected to see Ross do it, like that aggression melded with, that patience really made a difference. The way that he got through lap traffic and the way that you know he talked about, he was asked about how he drove differently, if he drove differently. He said, well, look at the two cars I passed to get the win. I think he was talking about Denny Hamlin, Martin Truex Jr., two guys who he's obviously had a lot of history with. Yeah. Do you think some of the things Ross has done since Darlington, I mean, we made so much about how he wasn't running up front as much for the last three races. Do you think there were things he did on the racetrack that maybe we didn't see or conversations that he had that earned him some dispensation
1: or some leeway with some of his competition? I I believe he's getting a level of respect. I I don't think there's anybody out there, uh, as far as the drivers go, that doesn't believe that Ross Chastain is a potential championship caliber race driver, that he is tremendous talent, can do a lot of really, really good things with a race car. but you know, there's, there's only been a few people to come along that could make people mad on a regular basis and get by with it and still win races and win championships. And Ross hadn't been put in that category yet. And, you know, maybe he will get to that point. But mm-hmm. I think what people are seeing is that it, it really did bother him. And the biggest thing, I, I don't think it was the other competitors. And he kind of said this last night that bothered him. But when Rick Hendrick called him out.
2: Look, when Mr. Hendrick criticizes publicly, it's tough i mean he is he is is the guy that everybody knows and he they know that that he you know if what he says goes he he deserves that um but i took that and he said you're going to win again ross like you're you're going to you're going to keep competing
1: just do a little better don't crash my cars
2: please so um,
1: that got his attention rick hendrick carries a lot of weight in this sport, in the world, uh, world of business. And you, you you don't want people, you want people like that on your side, especially when you're driving a Chevrolet also, you know, you want to be in good favor there. And uh, who knows? I mean, I, I know that right now, Ross plans to finish his career at track house, but we all have those things, you know, those ideas whenever things are going well at a place, but you know, it, there might come a day that Rick Hendrick wants to call Ross Chastain and say, hey, I've got this seat open, I want you to come drive for me. Don't know that'll happen, but you you don't want to make Rick Hendrick mad anyway uh, because he he can affect a lot of things out there. And so I think a lot of people realize that, you know, Ross was intentionally trying to calm things down a little bit after, you know, the the Darlington incident uh, with Kyle Larson there on that restart. And, you know, I looked at that as hard racing, could have been avoided. He might've been able to win the race without getting the lead right at that point so i think that he reflected on a lot of those things and and probably the biggest thing was you know justin Marks telling him hey take the opportunities that we have you know at, at that time they were leading the points they had you know we're kind of putting some space between themselves in the second place right and that was going to be another opportunity for him to do that then in the next four races you know they fallen quite a bit behind because of things happening uh, like that well i mean he lost a lot of points right there at darlington but i believe drivers are seeing that that there there is some compassion there that that ross has and, and understanding of other people and and how some of his actions were doing that and and that's going to be appreciated now they're not all just going to say oh okay ross has changed and everything's good as we saw eric almirola racing really really hard some people aren't going to forget you know they're going and we've said this, Kyle Petty and I said it for a long time. Jeff Burton said it. Dale Jr. said it. You know, anybody that's driven understands that to pay somebody back, you don't have to go wreck someone. You, that doesn't have to happen. You right. can make life miserable. Matter of fact, you can, you can do things for a longer period of time to make things miserable for them. Now, Eric doesn't want to be making it miserable because he's getting laughed all the time. But when those opportunities are there, um, he's going to make – that's probably the fastest that Eric ran all night was – trying to make life harder for Ross uh, during that time.
0: And Ross might have a few of those still coming from Kyle Larson. Like you said, not necessarily intentionally wrecking him, but yes, not not cutting him any slack or any breaks either. But I think you're yeah. right. I mean, you a great point that not only did Ross address the critics right away in his post-race interview with Marty Snyder, almost like steering away from the question that Marty was asking. But yeah. then, yeah, during his Peacock Pitbox interview with you guys as well, he he made a point of saying that Rick Hendrick that really was what affected me I, and you're right. I mean, if Ross Chastain wins a championship, which I think we all think he's capable of, Rick Hendrick, I don't think that door is ever going to be closed because we know Rick Hendrick likes winners, likes champions. But I want to ask you, DJ, because you asked Ross about that. I mean, we all knew he was going to make the playoffs, uh, but like you said, he was leading the points until this slump and you
1: never in until you're in. Now he's definitely in and you asked Ross afterwards. So after a performance like this, I, I know you came into the year after a, Tremendous season last year. Having an opportunity to win a championship last year. Coming in thinking, okay, we're definitely going to be that good, if not better. Uh, But you couldn't get a win until this point. Took 17 races, 17 weeks to to get to that point. You're still thinking, I'm sure before, that you were a championship caliber team. But does this kind of talk about flipping a switch? Uh, You're obviously in the playoffs now, but uh, championship caliber?
2: I have no idea. Look, I am figuring this stuff out as I go. I have been here since 2011 in the Truck Series and Kentucky was my third race ever, which is very similar and when I sit here I think of Kentucky and to now like to come here and win this many years later, I have no idea what that means for the future.
0: What did you make of what Ross said to you after you sort of put it out there like, "Hey, aren't you a championship
1: contender now?" It probably to be quite honest because we talked so much and the other questions had been about the race and they covered a lot of stuff, it might not have been a fair question there because he's trying to enjoy a win, you know. And, you know, this win came with no consequences of anybody being mad at him other than the guys that Denny Hamlin, Martin Truex Jr., that he outran. You know, they're not mad at him. They're just, you know, wished that they could have beat him. But so he didn't make anybody mad. He did this. You know, Steve Letard had brought the point up early, early uh, in the race that, you know, his two wins, as as much as we talked about how great a season his last year was for him and everything, to, to this point, his two wins had come on a road course and at Talladega, and, and that's not taking anything. You have to have great skills to win at those places too, but let, Steve latart was saying, hey, we need to see him win on what we would call a normal oval. So my question may have been a little bit soon. The answer, I understand, you know, you Ross is so genuine that <laughs> some people I would think that maybe they're just kind of dodging the question and, hey, I don't want to think about that until it's time, you know, and, and I just go race. But Ross really means that, you know. Yeah. He just – he truly just wants to go race. He You know, he's ready to go to Chicago now and see what that brings and then move on to the next one after that. He He knows that because of last year, but because of what this team and what he was able to accomplish – that they are championship caliber material, but he doesn't want to go throw that out there. You know, he, if he goes and says that, and all of a sudden people say, well, you know, he's won one race and now he's bragging about it. You know, here he's making himself the favorite. So uh, I hate that I kind of put him in that position, but he handled it very well. And again, I think he was very genuine in that. We'll be the ones to talk about that he certainly is a championship caliber driver and they're that kind of team too. I thought it was a good question.
0: And I thought it, showcase something I've heard from KP, you know, KP has been on this podcast before and talked about how he and Ross have have kind of developed this relationship away from the racetrack. And Kyle Petty has talked about that, that Ross Chastain's humility kind of goes overlooked sometimes that even though he's got this brash, aggressive side on the racetrack off the track, I wouldn't say he's like the swaggery kind of pounding his chest kind of guy. But that being said, I think what you just said is really important, DJ, that, that he hadn't had that win yet on an oval. Okay, Talladega is its own beast. Yes, Nashville isn't like a lot of other tracks on the circuit, but it, it almost felt as if he needed to win at a place like this to really feel like he was a championship competitor. And like you say, he's probably not going to admit that publicly, and doesn't really want to stir that up. But I would think to his team, to track house, that's why this was such a statement victory. Never mind that
1: it also happens in Nashville, where where Justin Marks yeah. and the team are based. Yeah, you're exactly right, and. I'm I'm a huge fan. Uh, you know, we're we're supposed to be as impartial as we can in this business and, and what we do. But you know, I, I really enjoy. I, I spend time talking to Ross at the track. I'll, I'm always interested in listening to him and hearing his side of things to begin with, and, and then you know what he's thinking because I, I'm really interested in his career. I I, I like where he's came from. He drove cars that simply just were not good cars just to have just to be there, just to be in races. And everything that he ever drove, he made the the car finish better than what it was capable of actually doing. And so I've always I'm always interested in people like that. But I've also developed a relationship that I can pick up the phone and call him. I can text him. He'll get right back to me. I am trying to get him to quit calling me Mr. Jarrett, but uh <laughs> other than that, we have really good conversations and uh the paint scheme at, at Darlington was a really cool thing they were able to do. You know, fortunately he has a sponsor that has a, a big tie-in with UPS. You know, that was great to see. So we've, you know, kind of had this relationship and, and again, I just enjoy talking more listening to him. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't have to ask a long question, which I'm capable of doing, but I can just ask him a simple question and get a really, really good answer. And and I do appreciate his talents. Um, he is very, very humble and uh, very appreciative of the opportunities that he's getting here.
0: That's great insight. And yeah, that's, it's really cool how that his worldwide express sponsorship kind of has that UPS yes. tide, which, which has created that connection, which you mentioned that scheme at Darlington, that throwback was really cool so the controversy here dj with ryan blaney where he hits the unprotected wall at the end of pit lane no safer barrier there i want to talk about that but first let's talk about the crash itself where ryan blaney had locked the wheels down as he was coming through the front stretch grass so clearly he was on the brakes but as he reached the pavement the wheel starts spinning meaning he released the brakes and he talked about this afterward that he was surprised that the car didn't turn essentially when he released the brakes and he still had probably, what, 60 or 70 feet until he got to the wall there, but he wasn't able to turn. Can you relate to that, your experiences as a driver? Does that just happen sometimes where you come off the brake and you think you'll be able to turn and then you can't?
1: Yeah, you know, it It was really strange to watch because there, there are some things about this car that, that are totally different. And that seems to me to be something that I, I, I feel like that I had seen this before. It may not have ended up in a head-on crash like what Ryan Blaney had last night, but it it seemed like that the drivers aren't able to get the cars to make as big a turns as what the old cars used to be, uh, used to be able to do, and that you could rely on that, that I understand exactly what he was trying to do and what his expectations were, and that was what was so strange. It was like, it it looked almost like he hit the gas, you know, that the car took off so quickly once he hit the pavement, It it almost like it accelerated, but in turn, he was just, he thought that he was going to slide into the barrier if he just stayed on the brakes. And if he hits the right rear with that, you know, it's going to break the toe link and then, you know, he's going to be out of the race. So I understand what he was trying to do. I think he was totally surprised by the fact that this car didn't do what they've known to be able to do in the past. And, uh, you know, it turned into a very unfortunate uh, and, and scary looking incident. And uh, I'm still concerned uh, for him. I know that he was, you know, released, you know, and I know we, you know, Steve Attard and and the NBC uh, people did a great job of showing exactly how these cars have been changed from last year uh, for safety issues. All of that's great. I hope that's that. But you can tell that that hit stunned Ryan Blaney. And I just hope that it was just the matter of it happening that, Took him a little time to recover from and this isn't another concussion type incident because we don't need something like that happening but you know it was a vicious hit and those head-on collisions like that uh, are very difficult especially into. i have no idea and i know we're going to get into this but i have no idea why there is a concrete barrier anywhere that a car can get as crazy as it sounds cars find these places uh, on their own sometimes, and you just never know. So I hope this shows that NASCAR and everyone else, that every track, once again, that if it's anywhere, you know, within three, 400 yards of the racing surface, then it needs to have a safer barrier on it.
0: Yeah. It's disappointing that we're still talking about this eight and a half years after Kyle Bush had an injury that took him out for three months because he hit an unprotected wall at Daytona during that Xfinity race. Uh, what gets me, DJ, is like I hear these I hear these explanations and reasons that are tied to cost. But to your point just now, I mean, let's hope Ryan Blaney is okay. I mean, certainly we hope yeah. that he's not out. But if he were to miss time or miss races, whatever it costs is worth the investment
1: versus yeah. losing drivers from races, right? Yeah, and, and we're not even talking about that big of a section. You know, yeah. it's not like that goes down a long way down in the middle of the corner down there. That doesn't really where that wall would continue on don't think that's a place that that anything's going to get although you never never know but you know you had to be able to figure that there is that possibility we see you know through the triovals at different racetracks that that cars come down across the the front of there so you, it's not like i don't want to hear about expense uh, i'm sorry yeah uh, that, that should not even be a factor in this when we're talking about safety this day and time, and especially uh, with what we've seen with this car, uh, with concussions and drivers, and I realized that Kirk Bush did hit a safer barrier, but that just shows how finicky these cars are and how touchy they are and you know what an issue this is. And I realize everybody's working hard with the cars, but we just the people working on the cars, we need to make sure that everybody's doing their job. And this is something that has to be addressed. And you know, I know we're going to a brand new place this weekend uh, coming up at Chicago. And, you know, uh, there's different barriers and different things there. But I hope that uh, a lot of time has been taken to to look at the different possibilities there. But as far as the ovals go, I hope that everybody, uh, you know, I hope Atlanta is looking ahead and saying, OK, do we have everything covered here if something should happen that we make sure that we have done our job and forget about the cost of it? I don't want to put anybody out of business, but I don't think the cost of that's going to do that. Uh, But we can't be putting these drivers in more harm's way than what they already are.
0: No, absolutely not. Safer barriers everywhere. And I encourage everybody to check out Dustin Longstar at NBCSports.com. And he asked Ryan Blaney after the wreck, and Ryan said somewhat jokingly, but somewhat not, I'll pay for it myself if I have to. And I think all the drivers would say that. And to your point, I don't know what it costs. Like I can remember when they outfitted Richmond with the safer barrier all the way around in 2003, it was about three quarters of a million dollars. I mean, I'm sure it's more now, but that was an entire 0.75 mile track. And we're talking about a really small section. So it's worth whatever investment it is. Hopefully they are looking at that in Chicago. I want to get to Chicago in one minute, but Nashville Super Speedway. uh, Why is this track racing? (laughs) Like, so I don't think anybody would have expected this in 2021, that it would emerge as such a, a
1: great racetrack it is incredible um you know i never raced there but i've watched a lot of races there i actually did you know testing like a lot of people since it wasn't on our schedule you know back in the early 2000s we could go there and test and it not count against us i found it a very difficult track so it just amazes me when i see things like these guys running three wide for the lead on a restart for I, I think it was at least two and a half maybe three laps behind them it was too wide and sometimes getting three wide it was just incredible racing. Uh, I think the car has a little something to do with that uh, that they're able to do that car and experience of these drivers i it was incredible to watch that I mean that was stuff that even when we see it happen at Daytona and Talladega you you realize that those tracks are wide enough and what they're doing it, they're capable of doing there but this is not somewhere that you would think. That you could run three wide for, the, for that long. And it, it wasn't even just the three wide. It was just incredible racing throughout the night. It, you know, all of it wasn't always for the lead. We panned back and showed, you know, other battles and the concrete surface and the lack of banking. As I talked to drivers on Saturday about the the conditions there, that, that seemed to be the thing that was brought up more than anything was that, you know, the the unpredictability of concrete surface, and then the lack of banking allowed them to do that. So it's made for really good racing. I I don't think that anybody could walk away from there or turn their TV off last night and say, man, that wasn't a very good race. If you did, I don't know what you're looking for. And and you certainly wouldn't be a Formula One fan because that wouldn't fit in at all, but it's just incredible. And yeah, you have to give the drivers some credit too. To understand that they can do that uh, was just amazing.
0: Certainly hope we don't see former the one style racing at a former the one style track uh, that NASCAR <laughs> is going to this weekend. First time ever in 75 years in the history of the premier series, NASCAR will be racing at a street course. So I'm trying to think of a way to ask you this, DJ. It's a little bit unique. There's nothing you can really say until they actually get there or on track. And I know we've analyzed it to death what we think it's going to be. So let me ask this. I was looking at the, the NBC Sports travel grid and I noticed I think only one person is running a car our huge <laughs> big contingents that, that's going to chicago um, which i'm sure makes all the, the the budget people in NBC sports very happy but it's a little bit unique for those in the traveling circus of nascar so have you ever stayed at a track and walked in every day without being at a motorhome lot i mean is is this going to be a completely new experience for all of nascar
1: and all the drivers and teams to be doing it this way it, it is going to be very unique and i uh, i think that the good thing is nate i think everyone understands why it needs to be this way and and why it's taking place this way. And, you know, that the amount of attention that this is getting, I think we're all willing to sacrifice a little bit. If you, I'd be quite honest, i stayed in Chicago a lot. I never did really enjoy driving around in that city anyway. So <laughs> with a car, so I'm perfectly fine not having a rental car, good restaurants all around. And, uh, you know, gonna be able to walk from our hotel uh, right over to the pit box and, you know, go through pit lane is and all of that stuff and, and by the, the fountain. So I'm excited about that opportunity and, and to see a race weekend turn out like this. So it, it is going to be something completely different. Everyone has done a tremendous job. Julie Geese, in particular has really done a phenomenal job. You know, the pictures that we showed yesterday of the stands being up, of the fan zones and stuff that are being set up, uh, just incredible the excitement uh, throughout the city there is much higher than it was when it was first announced. The excitement around the world—I mean, they—the the ticket sales have just been incredible. Where you know, all fifty states, and you know, I think they she said five continents and fifteen countries uh, that they have sold tickets. Just amazing interest that that this has garnered. Does it need a great race to finish it off? That would be icing on the cake. It, it's going to be a huge event and happening anyway something that NASCAR's never done. Chicago's never had a street race there. You know, it's going to be very interesting to see how it all comes off. Uh, I I know the drivers are a little apprehensive. And if I were driving, I probably would be too, uh, going to something and not getting any more time on the track than what they're getting. It was funny that, because I had been up there and a number of the drivers as I was walking through on Saturday uh, as they were getting ready to qualify were asking me because they had seen that I had been up there and they were like, so what is this part like? You know, where's, you know, how bumpy is it going to be? I said, hey, I was riding around in a van. I don't know exactly how bumpy it's going to be in your race card, but I said, it doesn't seem to be that bad there. And, and uh, I said, but I did tell them, I said, I think your biggest challenge is going to be going from the, asphalt to concrete concrete to asphalt and, and a lot of that happens on entries and exit of corners and and that's going to be something i think that they're going to battle a lot but the, the whole process is going to be something uh, totally new different than what any of us have experienced and so i hope everybody goes in with an open mind there's so much stuff going on around it once it gets to race time uh it's going to be interesting to see exactly what does happen on the streets of chicago
0: should be a huge event, you know. And as someone myself, I went to college, I went to high school in the Chicago area, so this is truly exciting. And to see Parker Kligerman do those standups uh, during our race in in Nashville yesterday, with the, the skyline in the background, and yeah. you know, as you mentioned, Julie Giese, uh, she said that I think seventy percent of ticket sales are fans who aren't in NASCAR's databases having attended races before. So yeah, wow. You would think the exposure level here is is going to be pretty impressive. The race itself. That'll be sort of the icing on the cake, but I think certainly there's going to be a potential for chaos. And that always means a potential for another winner. And, and as I'm looking, you're, t- we're talking here with you in your office and I can see the, the 1999 cup series championship photo behind you, which is pretty cool for people who are watching on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube page. But that makes me think of playoffs. Yeah. I think Ross Chastain gives us 11 winners now with nine races to go in the regular season, so five slots left in the 16 driver field for the playoffs. How many more winners do you think we'll see? Because I think we all knew Ross was probably going to be in regardless. So I guess in a way it doesn't change the calculus too much. But, I mean, we still got Chicago. We still got Watkins Glen. We still got Indy Road Course. got Atlanta. got Daytona. A lot of X-Factors out there.
1: There are. Uh, These next nine races have more wild cards. We used to just talk about, you know, Daytona kind of be in the wild card. But we've seen so many people, AJ obviously comes to mind that everybody's kind of making him the favorite this weekend for a good reason probably. I mean, he's really the only one that drives these cars on a regular basis that has street racing experience and uh uh see how that factors in. Uh but you think about others, Daniel Suarez who won at Sonoma last year, uh become a good road racer. You know, we've seen Chase Briscoe uh run well at Indy. Michael McDowell's been a factor at a number of these road course races. So to think that we could have two or three different winners on on just the road courses themselves and and the road course plus the street race, and then you throw in Daytona, I I really didn't think we would get to 14 uh, this year. And I'm not so sure that that we're not gonna get to that and possibly get to that 15 number once again. Uh, I think that's a very real possibility. You know, when you're sitting there with Chase Elliott, who hasn't won a race yet, but, you know, showed a lot more potential last night, probably his best race uh, since his uh, injury and, and coming back. And, you know, you, you got to believe that he's going to be a factor in a, a number of these races. And and then, you know, Kevin Harvick is sitting there. He had a fast race car till he had that flat tire last night. So you got to think that there's going to be somewhere that he's going to get in the mix and be able to win. So I think we might be looking at that 14, 15 number again. So. You know, talking about points is only going to be for uh, a number of drivers there, and that is tightly packed back there where they are now since that number changed. So, uh, you know, we we kind of had a little talk and debate last night, you know, is there a path for Chase Elliott to get in, you know, just on – sheer numbers. And he, he, you know, he gained 20 points there last night to that number. But as more winners come along, that number uh, gets to be something different. And so I think they realize that they probably need to win. So this is going to be fascinating. The potentials there, you know, not starting out with, you know, kind of getting multiple winners or, or winners with multiple wins. It kind of slowed my thinking down and I think a lot of other people, but I think I'm getting ready to ramp up with what we're seeing that, you know, we might even could we get to that 16 number? It is it's certainly not out of the question in my mind right now.
0: I know it's probably still a little bit of a long shot, but it certainly seems feasible. Yeah. Five winners in nine races does not seem so uh, daunting when you consider the schedule
1: ahead. Not with these nine races we have here. Yeah.
0: Anything could happen. And the good thing is it's all going to happen on NASCAR and NBC starting uh, this Sunday, Chicago on NBC. DJ, really looking forward to seeing you there and really appreciate you being on the NASCAR and NBC podcast. And it was a tight turnaround for you from Nashville. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Nate. Appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you in Chicago. Our thanks again to Dale Jarrett for joining us on the NASCAR and NBC podcast, which he taped after catching an early flight out of Nashville from a late Sunday night at the track. Really appreciate our resident NASCAR Hall of Famer DJ for his time and wisdom as always. Thanks to Motorsports Manager Emily Conboy for coordinating this episode and for Zach Catanzaretti, who is editing the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel version of the podcast. You can catch the full episode there as well as some notable clips from DJ. And also check more NASCAR America Motor Mouth's content and highlights from across the racing spectrum on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. For the first time in its 75-year history, NASCAR will race the streets of Chicago this weekend, and I'll be on site with Dustin Long, NASCAR Talk editor. You can go to NBCSports.com/NASCAR for all the details and schedules for how to watch the Cup and Xfinity Series races, as well as news, columns, and analysis on NASCAR Talk. I also will have coverage of IndyCar at Mid Ohio on Motorsports Talk, so please visit NBCSports.com/NASCAR or NBCSports.com slash motors for all your NASCAR and IndyCar coverage and Super Motocross from Dan Beaver as well. If you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send it to me on Twitter at Nate Ryan is my name. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast.